If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn actually to the book of Ephesians. And I want to just kind of begin our time tonight. I, I, I believe there is a good chance um, that I will get through last week's material and all of this week's material. Um, in part to spite my brother Tim here on the front who really, I think, roots for me and then um, enjoys when I fail. Uh, is, that, is that a fair assessment, brother? You root for me, okay, good. Um, but I, I really think I can get through it all, and one of the reasons why is, um, you know, we've 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 got to get to the next pillar of discipleship, which is biblical literacy. And so, want to make sure that I cover as much of that identity issue as I possibly can, but then realizing um, there's just no way I can comprehensively deal with our identity. I'm not even trying to do that perfectly, but really trying to look at the most significant and the most critical issues so that we can understand um, what it means to be a follower of Christ so that we have a good understanding of who we are. And um, you've heard it said, uh, I mean, I think Drew Moss was probably the first one. I had heard it before. He uh, spoke about it profoundly in a sermon one time, and maybe you don't remember him saying this, but Drew made the statement, and it wasn't original to him, but uh, I can't remember the preacher who first said it, but it went something like this. The more we tell people who they are, the less we have to tell them what to do. The more we tell people who they are, the less we have to tell them what to do. And that's interesting. I'm not trying to get out of it. I'm not trying to kind of, you know, create an excuse. I'm just tired of telling you what to do. I just hate telling you what to do. Um, but sometimes you can almost get a sense, and I'm, I'm okay with you evaluating my own ministry by this. If you hear me constantly just haranguing you on what you got to do and what you got to do and what you got to do and how that you should live, and I'm just... I seem to be almost angry about it. That probably is a sign that I'm not preaching enough on who God is and what God has done for us in Christ and how that has shaped our identity. I think that's true, actually. Um, and I, 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 love, I, would, I, would, I covet the reminder where you would come to me and say, listen, Jim, I, I think you could tone down um, some of the frustration that you might have. Just remind us what God has done and remind us who we are. Trust the Holy Spirit to work in us and then you can speak to us. It's not, about, it's not about one or the other. It's about one without the other. And maybe you've had people in your life that have spent a lot of time telling you what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do. And you, you seem kind of lost. I, I, I've been there myself. Um, it's, it's interesting, we've, we talked about this, we've talked about this a number of different times, how the Apostle Paul, particularly in the book of Colossians, um, focus about these things on Christ and then put these things to death. That's how he describes it. Let us look at what Christ has accomplished for us and now let us put to death these things. And I think that's the paradigm. So the book of Ephesians is one of the best. I've probably said this in the hundreds of times in my time at Sunnybrook, the book of Ephesians is divided into two sections. It is in chapters one through three and then four through six, okay? And one through three has at its very heart and core statements in the indicative. Now, I'll take you back to grammar, right? Statements in the indicative. A statement in the indicative are statements of fact, the first, Corinth, or the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians say, this is who God is and this is what God has done. And then this is what Jesus did. And then this is what the Holy Spirit did. They're just statements of fact. Jesus died for you. Jesus reconciled you to God. Um, Jesus reconciled us to one another. It goes on and on. God gave me this incredible ministry of reconciliation. Okay? Fact, fact, fact. Indicative statement of fact, statement of fact, statement of fact. And then when you look at chapter 4, just what's the first word in Ephesians 4? Do you see the move? What does it say? Therefore, and then he goes off. <laughs> not that there are, no, there are zero statements in the second half. That's not true at all. But then the second three chapters are not exclusively, but have a very strong imperative. So therefore, this is what we should do. So therefore, this is what we should do. So therefore, this is how we should live. So therefore, this is... And I love that model. That is a biblical model. And when we decide to have the imperative without the indicative, I think there is a great tendency for us as followers of Jesus Christ to become self-righteous. 
Let me tell you what I do. Why do you do that? Well, I don't know. I just feel like I should do that. Like what? Like pray. To who? Well, God, you know. But it can become self-righteous, can't it? Instead of an understanding about who God is. We now all of a sudden are asking God to do things. And we live our lives in such a way so that God might then answer our prayers. You need more indicative, not imperative. You need more true statements being given to you about who God is. Because you, you don't understand how to properly pray unless you understand who you're praying to. Does that make it, does he understand that? So to just tell you to worship or to tell you to whatever without the basis of it leads to self-righteousness. It leads to moralism, but not like a fault, like, like a, a spiritual formation, transformation, sanctification is the word I was looking for, okay? It leads to moralism. It doesn't lead to sanctification. And moralism in and of itself may make us, you know, a little more cooperative societally, but eternally it just, it looks like foolishness, Paul says. And so that becomes the, the major idea. So I, I, want, I, want, I want to read, as this is kind of my, you know, on the last issues of identity, I, I want to read to you in, in chapter two. So in the indicative statements, before we ever get to, therefore be patient and kind with one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as, as God in Christ has forgiven you. And therefore be light, Paul says in Ephesians five. And therefore husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands. And fathers do not exasperate your children and children obey your parents and put on the full armor of God. Before he does any of that, right? Some of the most famous imperatives that every one of us know. He says this, therefore remember, this is verse 11 of chapter two. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both of us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God, and by that, with that both is Jew-Gentile, okay, that's the paradigm here. Might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and him the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Like That's just goosebump awesome to me. See, this is why when you read something like that and you, and you begin to realize that Paul's context is Jew-Gentile and then you start saying, okay, so now let's have a conversation on, on, on important issues like, um, like, like racial equality. Does Paul speak to that? Yeah. So who are we? On um, I'm better than you because I'm a man and you're a woman or vice versa, by the way. I mean, it, it doesn't cut all ways. Does that answer this? Totally. Like this, this fundamentally cuts to the core of every major social issue. Why? Because it deals with these profound indicatives about what Christ has accomplished, answering more questions than we even know to ask, like even future generations. Paul would really have not understood the kind, of, um, the kind of racial conflict. He would probably understand um, ethnic conflict, i.e. Jew-Gentile, okay? But the, a lot of the other ones, he definitely would have understood maybe some gender problems. And by the way, in Galatians, what does he say? But in Christ, there is neither what? Slave nor free. And he, he's breaking down the greatest divisions, Jew or Gentile, male or female, barbarian or Scythian, for we are all one in Christ, 
And Paul is, is calling for this. Why? Because he really likes people and thinks we should get along. Mm-mm. I mean, hear me, he loves people. But he sees what God has done and he gives us these incredible indicatives and then says, okay, so in light of what God has done and the fact that Jesus Christ came for me and you and he made peace both for me and you, not only to God but then to each other, then you tell me how you live. You tell me how you look at one another. Can you figure it out? So watch. This is why just better thinking Okay? And I'm not just talking about the mind, but I'm talking about a better way of thinking where heart and mind and will meld together. So I'm using thinking in its broadest concept, that which floods over the emotions and begins to mold and shape the will. That when I tell you that you are a sinner, going back to those identity things at the very beginning, that you, made in the image of God, rebelled against him in every way, shape, and form. And did you know that you, in that form of rebellion, God gave his life for you in his son, Jesus Christ, and you are now forgiven. Okay, don't worry about everybody else yet. I just want to tell you that in Christ, God has forgiven you, you enemy of God. He became a friend to you and died for you, and now you are forgiven. Okay, you you live now in that forgiven. And Paul, this is how Jesus says it. When you understood, when you understand that moments ago you were standing before a king and begging him to forgive a debt that you could not pay. You know where I'm going with this, right? I love, this is probably my favorite story in, in the Gospels. When you, when you realize that you are the one standing before the king begging for him to release a debt that you could not pay. That when someone walks up to you with a debt that is insignificant in comparison. If you remember, this is who you are. What do you say to your brother or sister that says, will you forgive me my tiny little insignificant, petty little debt? What do you do? You forgive. It's when you forget who you are. To to say, by the way, this is how Jesus puts it. Don't, don't, don't. Well, no, shoot the messenger too. I'm okay taking it. Um, But really, I'm just here telling you what Jesus said. If you believe that you are forgiven here and yet know someone that you will not forgive here, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Fact. Okay? Which, by the way, so much more could be said on what forgiveness is. So if you want to continue this conversation, I think one of the major misunderstandings is how forgiveness works. But I just need to kind of get that in there. But understand that when I say I have been forgiven, and I, you know, I always pick on Tom, but he still sits up front. So obviously he at some level at least accepts it. So when, I, when Tom has wronged me with the greatest of wrongs, I just look and I go, but I mean, how can I not? You're, I mean, yes. It's when I step out of my understanding of who I am, when I step out of my identity, when I believe a lie about who I am, I am important. And how dare Tom treat me like that? Do you know who I am? And I forget this one. That is when I mistreat him. And Jesus makes it very clear. And when he comes, (laughs) he'll be looking for me. Really? After all I did for you, you do this to Tom? When you realize that you are not lovable. Like I know what your mama told you. I get it. I I even like, honestly, from my perspective, I think, listen, I think you're lovable, but I'm just a fellow unlovable person who's broken. But you know, like God doesn't love us because of that which is in us. He loves us because of that which is in him. Remember what Ephesians 2 says? God who loves us who is, who, is, who is great in this love, who is rich in this mercy, even though, we have, even though we are objects of wrath, statement of fact. God loves us with this great love with which he loved us. That's actually how the Greek says it. The great love with which he loved us. See, when I remember that I am loved, and not because I'm just so cute, right? You crazy little Canadian. I know that's what you're thinking. But if you saw me from God's perspective, you would say, like, actually, I love you from the overflow of who I am. And there are so many people I meet that just have a hard time, that just sound so mean of God. 
No, I would argue this. You have a, you have a overinflated view of yourself, which is not scriptural. I would argue you don't get you yet. But when I understand that I am loved, then I love. The most natural thing, when you, when you see someone that's having a hard time loving, that's having, and by the way, loving is not a feeling, it's an emotion. When you meet someone that's having a hard time loving, to just yell at them and tell them they need to love more isn't gonna work, okay? They just, they, they, become, they become more and more you know, either angry or they know how to fake it or they know how to manipulate for their own purposes. But when you genuinely like get that you are loved, like defenses go down and you, you truly are free to love. When you realize that you, this is why I think about Paul's letters, right? How often he says, grace and peace to you. When you realize that you are at peace with God, like you're at peace with him, then all of a sudden, you are, I would argue, at peace. Like probably what many of us need to hear, which would help with our anxiety, which would help with um, even how we look at many of our relationships, we would become ambassadors of peace. Which, which by the way, doesn't mean we don't have tough conversations. Paul had tons of tough, tough conversations, but the goal of those tough conversations was what? Peace. Like I want, I want my, the reason why I want to have this tough conversation with you, the reason why I want this to be a little bit uncomfortable is because I'm trying to get to a, a genuine peace. Not Neville Chamberlain peace. Not a close your, close your eyes and put your head in the sand kind of a peace. Not that actually. But actually like, but, but I'm at peace. Therefore, I'm not, I'm not angry at you. I, I, or at least I shouldn't be. Like I need to recognize that my enemy is not flesh and blood, but my enemy is the principalities and the powers of this dark age. And I begin to recognize I'm at peace. Therefore, at some level, I'm not saying I do this always perfectly, but as I become more sanctified and as I am reminded on a regular basis, Jim, you are at peace with the God of the universe. Like you need to live in that peace. Now all of a sudden, my relationships that I have maybe that aren't at peace, I'm, I'm working to make peace. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Did you know that? Oh, that's right, because that's what Jesus was, a peacemaker, right? So this is, this is and when they are, when you realize that your identity is one that is under grace, then you, you, you offer grace to people. You don't try to exert your pound of flesh. You leave room, as Paul says in Romans 12. Paul understands who he is. Paul is Paul, and I'm just a man. And I have a limited understanding of what is going on in the world. I have a limited understanding why, why Tom hurt me. Like, I don't, know, I don't know the full of it. And therefore, even though I've got a problem with Tom, and even though I've tried to correct this, and even though Tom, there is some restitution that Tom now owes me, I'm not going to try to exert from Tom a pound of flesh. I'm going to leave room for God in this. I'm, I'm not just gonna bury my head in the sand, but I'm also, because the, the problem is, have you ever been the kind of person ever, and you, 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 know, you think you're right to exact the pound of flesh? Right, because I mean, I'm with you. You were the one that was wronged. You know what I, I'm very aware of? I think God's gonna come and say to me is, yeah, you thought it was a pound. He, you, he actually owed you two ounces and you exacted a pound. Now you owe me 10 or uh, you owe me 14 ounces, right? That's kind of how Paul looks at it. See, who's the only one that knows why Tom did what he did? It's God. So therefore, who do I leave room for? Right? It's, it's when Paul says, so therefore, do not become a vindictive person. Do not do that. Why? Because that's not who you are. You're not that. Why am I not that? Well, because actually, you're, you, don't have, you don't have the ability to do that. You don't have the ability to exact judgment, do you? Do you think you really have the ability? I, I guarantee you, you will either ex expect too much or too little. You will either demand too much or too little. If you actually believe that you, as you're working in your relationships, can just manage them all perfectly, you don't get you. So what do I do? I remember I am, I am, I am a, a man under grace. 
And therefore, what do I do? I leave room for God. I love that statement. Leave room for him. Why? Because you're not him. It's, it's not just a, like a wise practice. It is based all in identity. But when you meet people who will not forgive, who have a hard time loving, who are always like at war, who or, or are anxious, who are always like exacting a pound of flesh and measuring everything out, I'm telling you, the answer is not more imperatives. Can I give you, maybe many of you are looking at your children and going, wow. Actually, I'm looking at my kids and going, oh, if I could just have the last 20 some years back, right? You know, don't hold them responsible. That was my fault. I really should have done a better job. And I really believe that actually. But the good news is they're still alive. So I can still remind them who they are, okay? So these pieces then shape our understanding indicatives before imperatives. Make sense? So now let's flow into kind of finishing up last week. And I'm gonna move through these rather, rather, rather quick. I think each of these could be their own session. Maybe even, you know, a a year from now, we may come back and just do a whole thing on these restored relationships. But there is a relational transformation that I think needs to take place in us. And I I think that the part that I wanna caution us against is that, so here is, here, is, here is you, and you're trying to understand who you are. And the problem is, is that you're kind of swimming in this cultural soup that is describing who you are. And so you're trying to like figure it out, and then there's all of these really strong influences telling you who you are, okay? And there's just no way around that, by the way. There's no way around that. Like so much of my identity is based upon what I have been taught about what it means to be a citizen of a country or an alien living in a country where I'm actually not a citizen. But literally, I am a resident alien is what they like to call me. They remind me of that. Hey, by the way, when I come into the United States, get into the resident alien line. Uh, Yeah, that's me. Thank you very much. Okay? So I've been, I've been told that I'm a man, and this is what it means to be a man. And right now I'm being told that's not what it means to be a man, right? So kind of culturally speaking, what it meant to be a man was to not cry when I got hurt, and to kind of, you know, to, to, to be the one who's, you know, that's kind of what I was taught. And now I'm being told it's none of that. So thank you. And, and by the way, my, my point is, is going, so do I, do I run back to this, or do I embrace this? And can I tell you what the answer is? No, no. And I, I would argue that. I, I would argue that, and, and yet realizing that at some level, I got you know, I'm, 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 I'm white. That's who I am. So that kind of shapes my identity, which, you know, in the past, it's been a good thing. Now it's like a totally terrible thing. So what do I do? Do I, do I run back and do I, wanna, I wanna, do I wanna fight for this? Or do I just wanna live in shame? And the answer is no, no. And, and, and it just keeps going on. I've got all of these, these issues that are swirling around in my head. All these, I'm a husband, and what does that mean? I'm a father, and what does that mean? And, and so I've got all of these ideas that are kind of running through my mind and kind of running through, the, the, how, how does this mold and shape? And that's why I think it is so important and so critical that I, I recognize what culture might say and I even need to, um, I even need to recognize, I, I, one, one recommendation I would give you is you'll never get this totally right. I don't, I don't think I'll ever get it totally right. But I need to allow God's word to be to the best of my ability, okay? Um, in degree to my sanctification, I need to allow it to be the primary forming factor, okay? That's what I would constantly challenge us to be, okay? And so let's just try to understand this. So then the gospel transforms and when I say that, what I mean is redeems and restores. It, it both redeems it, meaning that it used to be uh, like broken in the sense that it was worthless, but then it, it doesn't just like, I love this idea. It, it, although it is now like purchased, redeemed, right? Although it is now no longer on the side of God's enemy, it is now a friend, it just doesn't become magically fixed. It is in the process of being restored, right? That's why it's so critical that we understand that our salvation is I have been justified. I am in the process of being sanctified, looking forward to that day where I will one day be glorified. I was completely lost. 
I now am found. I'm becoming more and more found all the time as I grow in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And then one day, there will be no more sin or crying or pain or death, and I will actually be completely free from this body and this broken soul. And here's, what it, here's, here's how, so then my understanding of what it means to be a man, okay, and this is where I'm, I'm just, I don't even want to take the full time of that, is not actually primarily shaped by culture, but by scripture, which in a nutshell, and on, on the other side, you know, womanhood, I asked Andrea to come, you know, and to speak on this tonight, but she doesn't like speaking publicly. So I'll kind of, I'll, I'll speak for her tonight. So as we lump in the, the man side and the woman side, I guess the biggest thing that I want us to see is this, is that the understanding of who we are as men and women finds its meaning and purpose in, and I'll give you just some text that I would really challenge you to go back and look at, and, then, and, and even be careful how you look at them because you're going to bring into these texts how you've been taught about them in, instead of really kind of going back and looking at them and looking at them and then revisiting them and revisiting them. But going back and looking at like Genesis 1 and 2, going back and looking at Genesis 3, Going back and looking at like Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. Like going back and looking at these major texts that describe who we are. And then, and then realizing that even the concept of just manhood and then on its, say, flip side, womanhood, they're not two complete distinct pieces. Like biblically speaking, they fit under a larger umbrella which is known as humanity. So who is made in the image of God? Answer, yes. Who is a, a broken but redeemable image bearer of God? What's the answer? Yes. So what it means to be, and, and, and this is why I, I, I would really argue biblically speaking, that as we talk about even equality, okay, that we recognize that equality does not mean that there aren't, there aren't any differences. Thank the Lord. To even to try to dissolve all differences is not even what Ephesians 5 or what Galatians 5 is arguing. Even when he is describing there is neither male nor female, he's not saying, and there are zero distinctions. No, no, no. There are still some serious distinctions that exist. But instead of them to be envied over or to be like cast into different sides and not appreciated, as Paul even talks about the body of Christ, they are to be recognized as God-given and therefore they are to be honored and respected. And when you look at how God has ordained us to be, and this is what I love, when God has ordained us to be this, this is where we find our greatest freedom. And this is where we can even celebrate that incredible distinctiveness when we live in a culture now that is trying to tear those down completely. And then I would even argue, this is more of a gym thing, I would even strongly argue that to try to believe that somehow we can know exactly how all of these things are going to work out. I, I would say for whatever reason, the Bible has not given us the amount of specification and precision that I hear most people talk about. Okay, I just, I don't think it has. And again, you might say, oh no, 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 it's totally clear. Uh, I actually believe I can, I can get you confused rather quickly. I don't think you've kind of thought through it. I, I think there are areas that are clear in terms of the way it should be. And then there are areas that are less clear. Therefore, where there are areas that are clear, we need to be clear. And where there are areas where there are, they are less clear, I would just caution us and say be very careful <laughs> speaking boldly on very um, on, on less clear areas. It's kind of a, one of the rules of hermeneutics. One of the rules of biblical interpretation is, is that where there is clarity, we can actually promote clarity, but where there is, like for example, um, can a woman work outside the home? Which by the way, that's a, for the most of us, that's an old argument. I, I, I would be shocked if anybody in this room had a differing opinion on this. I really would. I mean, as I kind of look around, I, I, don't, I don't think that's even a conversation today. So I'll use that as an example. But it, how many of you can remember a day where that was like a real conversation? Yeah. Okay, so and the Bible says what about that? Okay, and I, I, I really would. I would argue it really doesn't describe it. I, I, I'm grateful for a book, I probably shared this with you before, a book named Choices by a woman named Mary Farrar, a very godly woman. And I, I love what she said. She kind of described the journey um, and she said, listen, it was the men who were the first ones to leave the home. 
Men left the home years ago. The Industrial Revolution just radically changed the family. But before that, for the most part, again, for the most part, where did men and women work for most of human history? At the home. And then men decided, hey, I'm gonna go find my identity and purpose elsewhere, and I'm gonna go find work. So they went to the factories, and they started doing well, and their identity and purpose, get, and then all of a sudden it was like, well, I want a piece of that. I never even considered that. To me, it was always men went off to work. I didn't even know there was a time. Well, you know, maybe a few farmers here and there. Um, actually, read history. So there was a fundamental, there, there are these huge shifts. So by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying that we have nothing to say. I'm just saying there are areas where I think it gets a little complicated. But then there are other areas, like in Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's not a confusion in terms of that, I would argue. I would argue very strongly that there's no confusion there. And we need to, we need to recognize that where there is clarity, we are clear. Where there is obscurity or where there is, I don't even want to say it's gray. Obviously, God in his wisdom, if he wanted it to be clear, he would have made it clear, Correct? And therefore, there is under that moment, how do I know how to act? I know how to act with one another this way as we kind of reconcile these things. But I, I guess, you know, what I, wanna, what I wanna leave us with this morning is, is that really challenging you men to understand who you are as a man based not upon what your dad said or what your dad didn't say or your mom said or what your mom didn't say or what your friends said or what your friends didn't say, but more fundamentally, on like what the Bible teaches in terms of what it means to be a man. And women, really try to encourage you to find your identity, not in the, the ways that the world has told you and then all those same kind of paradigms, but literally looking into the scriptures. Um, one of the strongest things that I would encourage you to do is to find godly people and ask them what it means to be. I mean, godly people. Um, one of my favorite books is uh, one of my, by one of my favorite pastors and communicators, Eric Mason, I uh, wrote a book called, uh, called Manhood Restored. And he is just a man that I look up to. Yeah, he's a pastor in Pennsylvania. And he's a very strong, 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 godly man. And he wrote a phenomenal book on Manhood Restored. And I was just so grateful for that book because it just described um, going back to those key texts. And it just called me back to a biblical picture. Not a male chauvinist picture, but a biblical picture. Um, I, I think you guys can understand. I, I come more from a male perspective than a female perspective, right? Although I did grow up in a family with a mom and four sisters, okay? But I, I want to say this to you men. I'll just, uh, if you, the rest of you can find Andrea and talk to her someday. But uh, I, I want to say this to you, that, that I was really challenged by an idea um, in terms of what it truly means to be a man, to caution me against the two temptations that exist in my life personally, which is to be some kind of, uh, of overpowering, uh, to use a word like more of a chauvinistic, but it, it doesn't just mean kind of putting in women in their place, but just kind of more of a bully. That's, that's one way I know how to handle my problems is to be a bit of a bully. Mine's more verbal than physical because of just the way I am, but not to be that. And, and then to realize that the answer for that is not to be a coward. I, I say this to all the men I get to disciple. You will, you will vacillate um, between like just saying nothing in your marriage, with your kids, at work. You'll just be a coward. You just will say nothing. Like that's not, that's not what it means to be a man to say nothing about injustice, to say nothing about what is right or true or that is not what it means to be a man, okay? And by the way, I'm not saying only men have this responsibility, but I'm speaking to men right now. That is, that is not the appropriate response. Oh, okay, you're right. I'm gonna let him have it. Oh, wow, like can you not find, and I, I don't even know if I'd like to call it middle ground. It's just this is wrong. To be a bully and to be manipulative and exploitive and overbearing is not a good, it's, it's not a good attribute. It's not a Christ-like attribute. But what I, what, I, what I, and maybe I'm the only one that understands, I see this in myself. When I get angry, I become this guy. And when I become stressed and when I just feel like almost like I don't think anything I do is working in my relationships, any other guys in this room just wanna quit? Fine, you wanna do it this way, babe? I'm done. Like, I mean, honestly, like I'm, I'm tired of fighting with you on this. I mean, you guys know I love my dad, right? 
But I, I, I went to my dad a couple of years ago and I just said to him, dad, like, I love you so much and you've probably had the greatest influence on my life, but I just need to tell you, your statement over the years, son, above all else, keep the peace in the family. And it, it wasn't this. It really wasn't this. It was more of this, to be honest with you. And, and by the way, my dad is by no means a coward. But I, I watched my dad kind of have this, at times, like this resignation. And it wasn't like I'm trying to find peace in my home. It was, it was kind of like, fine, just let your mom have her way. Right? You ever been that person? Got to keep mama happy. That's not peace, by the way. I, 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 now the more I hear it, and I've, I've been that guy. Kind of condescending, isn't it? Fine, we're going to let your mom have her way. Is that what God called us to be as men? It's about having your way, right? What does Ephesians 5 say? Love her like Christ loved the church, washing her with the word. Do you understand that? Do you get the complexity of it and the richness of that? But I think what is missing in the church are these kind of in-depth, painful, um, I I, I really am, I I think I'll be able to handle the day where my boys come up. That conversation I started with my dad actually uh, created a firestorm. I'm sure you can't imagine that, but yeah. Uh, I remember it started about 10 o'clock at night and about three or four in the morning, we had kind of, kind of calmed down a little bit. You know, both of us are French Canadian, him more than me. And so we'd kind of calmed down a little bit and I think both hurt each other. And I had to realize, wow, like I didn't know as much as I thought I knew about some things. And he was able to hear me, right? I'm not 12. I'm like, I was probably 44 at the time. And I, I need to be ready to hear those conversations with my kids about what it means to be a man. Like, when they were five, I got to do this. And when they were 18, I got to do this. And now that they're like 25, it's even more so. Daughters with your moms and moms with your daughters. I mean, this is the kind of conversations that we need to have. Always going back to the scriptures, not culture. Major transformation. Next, obviously gospel transforms the marriage. I've already kind of talked about that loosely, but um, I, want, I want to use this real quick example. I, I remember at my wedding, there was this incredibly powerful conversation that a gentleman had. Um, we called him Uncle Dick. He was a pastor. Um, it was 1989, so a little more throwback than 2017. And he stood up and he kind of pontificated on Andrea's role within our family. And uh, it was nothing that Andrea didn't like. But her two sisters who are unbelievers, who are, uh, say, more on the feminist persuasion than on the godly persuasion, um, I love the video because they are ready to punch him in the mouth. (laughs) And they cannot believe that this man would stand up, this old caveman, stupid preacher guy, and how dare he tell Andrea that she needs to submit to her husband, and how dare she, and oh, they were livid. And I remember going, this is not going to go well. I wasn't looking forward to the reception. I mean, it was just, it was one of those difficult things, okay? And I remember Andrew and I realizing, like, they, we can't even explain to them about our marriage. Like, well, I can't even explain what this means. Because to them, when they hear love and submit, they hear Jim be a bossy jerk, Andrea be a pushover, stupid coward. That's how they hear it. They don't hear the biblical mandate. They hear a worldly perspective of the biblical mandate. And I even remember like wanting to defend it and, and by defending it, I wanted to like, like to try to apologize for Paul and Jesus. And I just, I, I couldn't get there, like biblically. And I finally just said to Andrea, we're never gonna win this fight. Why don't we just see what time does? And what was fascinating was, and you've, some of you have heard me talk about this, like over time, the two of them began to realize that there was something that Andrea and I had. And I, it was so fascinating because they would say things like this. And it's not that they just think I'm this great guy, okay? But they look at our marriage and they look at their marriages and they will say at times, you have something we don't have and then they're kind of confused about it. I wonder what it is. (laughs) And Andrew and I look at each other and go, "Um, it's called Jesus. It's Jesus that keeps submission looking like, like something beautiful instead of something that is just cowardly. And it's like Jesus that, that describes like this love and this like, you know, and it's so funny. They'll just say things like, well, it's not that I want Jim, but you guys have something that honestly, it, it's kind of admirable. And I, I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for those times. I'm grateful, first of all, that they're willing to be um, forgiving of those times where I don't act or Andrea doesn't like. But it's, it's funny because I remember coming to my wife's defense in front of them one time. 
because I think that's one of my responsibilities. I will defend my wife against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. I will. It doesn't matter if it's my kids. It doesn't matter if it's their, her sisters. It doesn't matter if it's her parents. I've not had it with her parents, but hey, just, be, I mean, honestly, I'm here to defend my wife. God's put me here. I'm here to defend my wife. And I remember kind of putting Andrea's sisters kind of, hey, listen, like, we're not doing this again. Like, you will not speak to my wife like that. Just so we're clear. Well, who are you? I'm her husband, actually. And what was interesting was, kind of long term around, she, they were like, wow, that was kind of admirable. I don't know if my husband would have stuck up for me. I think he would have said, yeah, we're equal, and so you're on your own. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome that you get to be all on your own because you're equal? I think that sounds terrible. And by the way, she comes to my defense. Like, isn't that what the Bible is? And I, I would just, here's what I want to encourage us is that the more that we really lean into texts that the world might not even understand and the more that we model them, even though it might not be popular, I promise you it will be winsome in the end. It will defy explanation. And people will walk away and go, I can't explain it, I can't put my finger on it, but when a man loves his wife like Christ loves the church, it is the witness. And when a wife loves her husband like God has commanded, it is just the greatest feeling in the world. And I'm so grateful for my wife, so grateful for my wife. Okay, so think of your marriage as an incredible witnessing tool. Obviously, the gospel then transforms the family. And the only way that it can actually do that is by recognizing the need for the family to have, A, a very important part, but on, on a kind of on a much deeper level, a part that is within a bigger picture, which is within God's family. I mean, Jesus is the one that doesn't just say, the family is the most important thing. No, it is, the family is this wonderful thing, and these are responsibilities of husbands and wives, but this is the responsibility of the church, and here is how the family and the church then work together, and here is how the, the, the church actually, actually functions like a family, even to the family, and here is how the, right, this is kind of how it works, and so there needs to be a restored family. Again, going back to one of my favorite examples of this is watching the gospel through Jake and Aaron's ministry in Ethiopia be transformed when a, when a father begins to realize, remember this story, right? The dad would come in and the dad would consume all the food and there's a lot of malnourishment that happens, not because there's no food, but because the idea is I'm the man and I eat till I'm full and then to the next and then to the next and then the youngest one starved to death and they don't even know what they're doing is crazy. But when the gospel comes in and the dad begins to realize his responsibility that is God given to him to love his wife and to love his children and to live sacrificially, the husband then learns to do what? Not a command, but an understanding of who he is. He shares his food. Do you realize how that just fundamentally changes a, a, a community? And, and when we begin to recognize that our families are these incredible witnessing tools for Jesus, where, children's, where children honor their parents. I mean, did you hear Jonathan on Sunday? Was that not profound? Jonathan, whose dad has been nothing but disrespectful, what is he told? Hey, listen, Bible doesn't say honor your father and your mother if they're honorable. It says honor them. And you might go, yeah, but Jonathan had a good dad. Did you not hear the story? You might go easy for him. Did you not hear the story? See, that's what happens when our identity, when our identity is, is, is like confirmed and grounded in scripture, it defies our experiences. It defies our understanding. It causes us to trust in Jesus. And how many of you wish you had the faith of Jonathan? I do. I don't look at him and I go, I feel so sorry for him. What a loser. How many of you looked enviously at him? You wanna know why? Because he leaned into the scripture and it redefined who he was as a child of this dad that did not deserve him because he had a father that chose him. See that? That's how family changes. And what did he say? He said, and now I will have a son who will not know the pain that I had as a child. Why? Because the gospel has transformed my life. Okay, moms and dads, your children need to see how the gospel has utterly transformed your life and therefore has transformed your family. And then obviously this, this last piece here is that it's, it's, it's not just a matter of, um, 
of, of, of transforming kind of those kinds of relationships. But I just, I always want to include this because to just try to assume that everybody's in a family and that everybody's, that's actually not true. There's some in this room that are actually single or there's some in this room that may even be single for a really, really long time. Like um, as, as, a, as, a, as a, maybe even a smaller category, it literally, the gospel then redeems and transforms even a lot of the cultural needs that we think we have or that we think that we're supposed to have um, I, I remember when I, was, when, I was, uh, when I was teaching at Ozark, one of the texts that I had students study was 1 Corinthians 7, which begins like this. Now about virgins. <laughs> and it begins to talk about how we should consider marriage. And I would, I, would ask, I would ask students who, for the most part in my class, were single. And I would ask them, I want you to study this text and exegete this text. And every one of them came back and said this. I never actually even prayed about whether or not I should marry like the text commands. I never even considered it. See, what the gospel does, okay, is the gospel transforms everything. And it doesn't say marriage is everything, but it also says is that our relationship with Jesus then becomes the center. So probably one of our greatest needs is our, our greatest, our, one of our greatest just natural, cultural, but even just natural need that we actually have is that union with someone else that we call marriage. It's a beautiful thing, okay? I don't want to apologize for it. But what if that doesn't come? Are you still a person are you, are you still, are you, are you half a person? And what does the gospel say? And what's interesting is the gospel doesn't lift you up and say, no, 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 you're just as valid. No, the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel says this, in Christ you are satisfied. Like in Christ you are complete. You're not half a person. And, and then all of a sudden you and I have some incredible opportunities, okay, like in the church, it has always bothered me when I, I meet like single people and they just, they walk into a church like this. I mean, I want us all to care about this. They walk into a church like this and they go, there's really no place for me because everybody breaks up in families and everybody, all the groups have families and all the groups. And I'm just going, actually, that's not the way the church should be, to be honest with you. And yet I don't want it to become, I mean, I just don't like these. It's not about, well, we need to have this over here and then we need to have kind of this over here and we need to have these affinity groups. And so if you're married and you have two children and one's a boy and one's a girl, we've got a group for you. That's just ridiculous. But how do we have a church that truly understands um, and not diversity for diversity's sake, but the fullness that each of us can have in our diversity in Christ so that we all have a sense of completeness? no matter where we are, because here's the major teaching in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, is whatever state you find yourself in when you come to Christ, be content there. Whatever state you find yourself in. If you're single, stay single. If you're married, in a bad marriage, stay married. Are you ready for this? I mean, put on your big boy seatbelts, put on your, like if you're a slave, you're a slave. Like it's not the end of the world because you're in Christ. I know what you're saying, easy for Paul to say. I don't think you understand what he went through. I mean, that's the power of the guy. And if you, by the way, if you go, hey, listen, the gospel isn't that big. You don't get the gospel. In Christ, we are complete. Okay, let's kind of wrap this up. This last little bit actually is gonna be easy for me to wrap up with. So then, therefore, if these are our contexts, you've, you've seen us do this over and over and over again. Um, so then where, do, where does this look like? And you've heard us talk about this. How many of you heard us talk about concentric circles of responsibility or concentric circles of discipleship? Okay, I am so grateful for this. And I'll, I'll give you a quick context. Um, I am the, I'm the kind of guy that takes everything seriously. Like I hope I do. I take my marriage seriously. I take my family seriously. Um, I take my ministry seriously. I take all of these things. I take my life group seriously. I take, I take the global evangelization of the world. I mean, so that, that's just who I am. And then my wife comes along and she's a very different personality than me. She's not an extrovert, she's an introvert. Okay, she's not the first one, to, she's not a verbal processor. She's actually a very kind of like a quiet, kind of walking things through, more cautious. Um, she's not one to, to be like the out in front leader, but she's definitely one who leads, but it's kind of in a completely different person. And I began to look and just think, wow, like, like when I preach, am I trying to turn Andrea into Jim? And when I do that, I have to stop and go, am I trying to turn you into me? Wow, that, you into me, why? I mean, I like you. Why would I want you to be like me? I don't know if I like me sometimes. 
And then the more that I began to read the scriptures, the more that I began to look at Paul, the more that, the more that as a staff we began to look at it, we began to say, wow, like, it's not about just respecting Andrea for who she is and appreciating what she brings. It's, it, 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 go, it runs so much deeper than that. That instead of just mandating that every single one of us be like Jim, or every single one of us be like someone not Jim, what if you're supposed to be who God made you to be? Why don't we do something crazy like that? And instead of every one of you becoming a pastor and every one of you becoming a life group leader and every one of you becoming a mission uh, trip leader and every one of you becoming um, a Stephen leader, every one of you becoming, like what if that's not the goal of everything? Okay, which by the way, was a bit of a radical idea for me about eight or nine years ago. Because I thought everyone, not like me, but kind of like me, only an introvert version of me. Which, by the way, to show you how messed up I am, I've always considered introverts to be extroverts who don't like me. Okay? Think about that. I've, that's how I've always understood it. Ah, they're actually, an, who wouldn't be an extrovert, right? And so uh, introverts are just extroverts who don't like me. So they just don't want to be around me. Okay? <laughs> but yeah, that might be true, but that's a whole other conversation, okay? But here's, here's what's very interesting is that I had kind of a one-dimensional view of this instead of saying, like, maybe, maybe all I can do, and I love this, I love how this pulled me back into the biblical text. Like, maybe what Andrea needs to do is not what I think or not what culture says, but like what the Bible says. And maybe what I need to do is not what I think culture says a pastor should do, but what the Bible says. So can I tell you what the Bible does say about me? You've heard me say this, so I'll do it quickly. If I have a ring on my finger then I've got a discipleship relationship responsibility that I need to focus on. And it is the most foundational. How do I know that? Because if I fail to not act as Andrea's husband, who will do that? Answer, no one. If I decide to not lead my life group, could someone else lead my life group? God didn't say, Jim's the only one that's allowed to lead this life group. No, no, no. Lots of people can lead that life group. Who is the one responsible for being the husband to Andrea Johnson? Like, it's, it's true. It's, it, it's not every relationship is compared to Christ and the church, but mine and Andrea's is. Mine and Andrea's relationship, and the two shall become one flesh. And for this reason, I will leave my father and my mother, and I will cleave to my wife. See that? I got tons of biblical mandates. What if that isn't just assumed, but becomes a discipleship context? Okay? Now, by the way, if you're, if you're single then you don't have to, you can, you can actually see that as, you know, uh, you, you can kind of move beyond that one, right? And then I ask myself, do I have children? So before I even, even think about leading a life group, I've got four boys in my home. And I've got to disciple them. And if I don't disciple them, who will disciple them? Now hear me, someone could step in, just like someone could step in and, and act like a husband to Andrea, but I am, if I do not care for the needs of my family, the context is physically, right? But if I'm worse than what, what does Paul say? I am worse than an unbeliever if I do not care for the needs of my family. Therefore, as a pastor, if I choose to neglect what I've loved about the other elders is they have done a phenomenal job challenging me to turn my eyes towards home. Okay, because I, 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 I wanna be there, but I get really excited about what I do, right? And I love these men who've always said, well, go home, Jim, just go, turn, remember, remember, remember to go home. I'm like, okay. So, you see how that works? And then, by the way, the beauty of it is, is that then as God gives, are you ready? This is what I want you to hear. As God gives gifts and ability and calling and time, then we can begin to assume greater responsibilities. And so all of a sudden, I look at where I work, I look at a Minds a Life group. I look at a kind of a group that I actually have and my responsibilities of discipleship continue. And then I meet a young man named Dylan Reed and he says, will you disciple me? It's, it's, it's different than these relationships, but God seems to be putting people in my path and in my way and I've got a responsibility. And by the way, there's like Sunnybrook. There's all of these responsibilities that I have that God has given me gifts and abilities and calling on. But can I just show you what happens? When you decide to ignore a core one, I mean, imagine that this is like, imagine physics, okay? And imagine what happens when you ignore these and you begin to put an emphasis out here, right? This is, we see what happens. It just gets all out of whack, doesn't it? Like this is the one that demands, and when we decide to skip this one so that I can, have you seen pastors that do this? I'm gonna focus on this one. And then this one collapses. 
and then this one collapses. What happens? Like a black hole, right? It just spins out of control. Why? Because don't mess with the way God made things. You see that? That's why it is so critical and it is so important. How does Paul, think about this, I, I never really kind of put this together. What does Paul say an elder should be? Husband of one wife, whose children obey him. And then he keeps moving out in, in circles in a way, doesn't he? This is what an elder should be. Why? Because if not, if you have some guy that can look really cool out here, but whose center is completely out of whack, you have no idea the damage that that person can do to a church. Wow, I, I, I mean, the more I read God's word, the more I realize he is brilliant. And every time you and I seem to have a reason, right? A reason why, I don't think the, world, the word works on that. It's just give it some time, you'll find out how dumb you are. I have. I, I mean, there are things, I don't get why God did that. And then I, I grow up a little bit or I experience, oh, I see totally why God did that. Man, I'm sure glad I decided to, you know, just kind of do nothing because if I would have kept on going down that road, it would have been destruction, okay? Turn over to the other page. Final thoughts. So basically, what, what, I, what I really want you to do is, I want you to just think through like the circles that have like the great, here, here's one of the ways that a graduate professor told me this. He never really, he was describing it in a different context. It was one of my, 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 uh, my history professors. But he would say to me, like, Jim, what you need to look at in your life is, um, he said, there are different women in my life. That's kind of the way he used it. He said, I have a wife, and I have a mom, and I have a sister, and I have a daughter. I have all these different women in my life, and all of them are women. I've got, a, you know, uh, my, my best friend's wife. I've got all these women in my life, but there are varying degrees of intimacy that are appropriate and right. And I try to use that as the paradigm, that to try to treat everything is the same. To try to treat every relationship as the same is, is it's, it's, not, it's not biblical. I think it's incredibly unwise. It's when all of a sudden I start, well, let me tell, let me tell you, you should treat your wife and I'm gonna kind of, and you're like, dude, chill back. Like, well, you're, ste you're stepping over my responsibility. That's, that's actually like abusive. When I start acting as someone else's wife or someone else's husband in that situation, that is when I overstep, and when I do that, God will, will deal with that. God will actually judge that. When I overstep, that's why one of the reasons why we so believe in orange is because I don't want to step into your life and become your child's parent. Because when I do that, it undermines what God is doing here, right? So do you see how this actually fits like in a biblical way? in a really important way. So you, what I want you to do is I want you to go through and begin to look at the intimacy factors that you have in different relationships. And if you kind of feel your life relationally kind of feeling like this, like it's kind of somehow out of whack, I, I would say that maybe that's a sign that you need to go into the center and, and begin to work on those places. And maybe, I know this sounds crazy, Maybe let go of some of the responsibilities that you have at some of those outer rings. Rethink them, repray, repray that, and get some wise counsel. By the way, I'm not asking you to just abandon everything. I'm just calling you to kind of prayerfully think through. Don't ignore responsibilities that God has clearly given you to escape. I think many of us, right? I mean, I know a lot of people that go, but I'm really bad at marriage, but I'm a phenomenal lead pastor. Well, I'm just telling you, Paul said that's not possible. Like that will, I mean, I honestly believe that. That will catch up to me. That's why I love to tell my kids when they were little, <laughs> if you see something in me where I'm preaching on Sunday that you don't see, you know, in the home during the week, get help. Because as much as I don't want, you know, I see a number of good brothers that were elders, as much as I don't want you guys showing up and, and calling me on the carpet, as much as I don't want that, what I really don't want is to crash this place down. I, I would rather the awkward, embarrassing conversation in my kitchen <laughs> where I have been an utter failure than burning this place down to the ground, right? I mean, that's, that's not even a question. And, and by the way, that's, that's not just for Jim. That's for every single one of us. Okay, so let's go to the last page. I wanna read this statement from John Frame and then, and then kind of describe why it's so critical that we think through these things. See, um, the last part, I know I've got more space here and I probably could keep talking about this, but what I want you to recognize is that there are individual identity issues that you need to work through. 
Okay, they're identity things. Each of you need to come to a saving relationship with Christ. You need to understand if you're male or female or married or single or whatever. You need to work through all of the specific individual things that apply to Gary and apply to Marilyn, apply to Tom, apply to Dylan, apply, right? You need to do that. But then you need to realize that much of the New Testament is not written just to Gary or just to Marilyn. It's not written just to Alyssa. It's actually written to us. Are you ready? This might blow your mind. John Frame, before he says this, gives an analogy, and here's what he says. Think about how wrong it is to say, a car is heavy, therefore everything in a car is heavy. The cigarette lighter is heavy, the steering wheel is heavy. That's actually not true. To say that a forest is full of thick trees does not mean that every tree in the forest is thick. To say that Native Americans are disappearing within societal landscape and that John is a Native American, therefore John is disappearing, is actually a logical fallacy. Do you understand that? Just because the car is heavy does not mean the cigarette lighter is heavy, okay? So here's what he says. You ready for this? Christ commands his church to evangelize the whole world. I am a member of the church. Therefore, Christ commands me to evangelize the whole world. I mean, many of us have felt that, haven't we? And I'm supposed to go evangelize the world. You hear Jonathan speak, I'm supposed to go evangelize the world. Are you you ready for this? This might blow your mind. Wrong. Hmm. Much grief has been wrought by pastors, I apologize, who take commands in the Bible that are intended for the church as a whole and then impose them on individuals, as if each individual had to do the whole job himself or herself. Thus, individuals are led to think that they must pray all day, evangelize their neighborhoods, become experts in scripture, Christianize all the institutions of society, i.e. cure all societal evils, feed all the poor of the world, and so forth. Are you ready for this? No. Isn't that not crazy? These commands are for the church as a whole. And then individuals contribute to these purposes in accordance with their particular gifts. Okay, that's... So I, I, I do, we'll, we'll, we'll have an opportunity to continue to unpack this, but what I really want to say to you is when in those times I or others have added to you a guilt about all the things that you are not doing to feed the world and to end racial injustice and gender inequality and all of these things, right? When you have felt like I'm not doing everything that I can do to do it. I'm not, I'm not an expert in the Bible and I don't know Greek like Jim knows Greek. Are you ready for this? Okay. That's not a problem. Hear me. He's not saying this so that you can skirt a responsibility that God has given you. But you do realize that what my good buddy TJ here does within Stephen ministry means that not every one of us needs to do Stephen. I mean, none of us believe here that everybody needs to be a Stephen minister. Not every one of us believes everyone needs to be an elder. Not every one of us believes everyone needs to sign, sign up for a compassion child but we need to. So so here's what I love about this idea. Therefore, like Jim or like Andrea, I need to realize there are individual gifts and abilities that God has given me. And God has given me the Holy Spirit. And now I must do the hard work of discerning. God has given to us the, the responsibility of evangelizing Stillwater. So how do we do that? Tom, what, do you, what is your part? And Tom tells me his part. Tom can't go, ah, it's actually none of my responsibility. It's more of an us thing. No, that's irresponsible. But it's not Tom's job to become Jim to do the job. Do you see that? This this is what, I mean, the more that I look at this text by John Frame, the more grateful I am and the more convicted I am that there have been times, right? You can think of maybe sermons that I've said where in the end, it feels like, wow, I think Jim wants us to do everything. No, even when we talk about go, gather, grow, I'm really not asking you to go everywhere. I'm not asking you to gather with everyone. I'm not asking you to grow beyond what, no, no, no. What what I'm saying is, is in light of your identity as an individual and then thinking about praying through and then responding to what the Holy Spirit says to us communally, God has given us a mandate. To what? To go into all the world, teaching every, making disciples, teaching all of them to obey everything that I've commanded and I will be with you. That's that, by the way, that is you plural. Not just you Jesus says he'll be with us to the very end of the world. And now all of a sudden, instead of you feeling guilty, and what honestly concerns me most is I I meet people, particularly young men, 
who say things like this. Like, I know I'm supposed to read my Bible all the time, and I know I'm probably supposed to go on every mission trip. I just, and I'm thinking, wait a second. So you actually think you're supposed to be doing that, and you somehow are at peace with not doing it? That's what scares me, actually. What scares me is, is more is that you have this weird conviction that you're not acting on. That's what scares me the most. And I just wanna come in and say, hey, I'm not trying to get you off of anything. But do you do believe that God has given to us these mandates? And to us, we shall fulfill them. Well, how do we know that? Because he is faithful, okay? So think about that, reflect on that. When we come back, we're gonna be talking about biblical literacy, which is that second pillar of discipleship. I hope you have been encouraged on this deeper understanding of what your identity is in Christ. And I hope that you live in that. Now, on one final as you leave note, um, how many of you saw the big compassion trailer over there? If there are any of you that are available, I don't need a lot, but we do need some people that, could, that are available tomorrow morning at 8.30 to just help them set up for a few hours. So if any of you are available from, say, 8.30 on a little bit, we could probably use your help. We only need eight people, and I've already got a number of people, but just if any of you would like to come and to be a part of that, will you please uh, just tell me that you could be here tomorrow? Love you guys. Go in God's peace, and we will see you Sunday.